Welcome to the Faith at Work Sermon Podcast. I'm Pastor Jim Melvin. Each week, I turn to Scripture and to our faith for wisdom and guidance in our lives. It's important that we be able to apply what we read in the Bible to what we experience in the world. Today, I'm going to be looking at some insights into what is occurring in Gaza as Israel continues to pursue and punish the members of Hamas for their brutal attack, which occurred back in October. The world was shocked as we watched the brutality of the surprise attack, which began with a barrage of over 3,000 rockets, followed by an incursion of Israel by about 3,000 fighters. The attack resulted in the death of about 1,139 Israelis and the taking of about 250 hostages. The response to the attack was swift, and it's been prolonged. To date, over 30,000 Palestinians, about 70% of whom are believed to be women and children, and the killing and violence continues. It's easy to see why the international community seems paralyzed in helping to bring about a resolution to the situation. On the one hand, Israel was subjected to a brutal assault of almost unmatched inhumanity. Israel has a right as a sovereign nation to defend itself. The ongoing response, however, is resulting in an unprecedented an unacceptable loss of innocent lives. Despite the intervention of other nations to broker a peace, or at least a lasting ceasefire, there is, as of yet, no middle ground. In response to Israel's lengthy and disproportionate response that has not effectively protected civilian life, South Africa has filed a genocide case with the International Court of Justice in The Hague. South African lawyer Adia Hissim says that Israel has dropped 6,000 bombs a week on Gaza, including 2,000-pound so-called dumb bombs, which kill indiscriminately onto areas declared safe by Israel, including refugee camps. Israel counters that Hamas uses innocent civilians as human shields, and that they are doing their best to protect innocent lives. Collateral damage is inevitable. Complicating the situation, this conflict is fraught with religious and biblical implications, which is what I want to talk about. According to the biblical tradition, Israel stakes a claim to the land they occupy by virtue of a 4,000-year-old covenant that God made with Abraham. Unfortunately, there are other ancient claimants to the land, namely the Palestinians. Most problematic is the fact that God appears in ancient times to command the Israelites not only to conquer and possess the land, but to utterly destroy its previous inhabitants. In other words, God demands genocide and is upset when that command is not followed. We need to attempt to reconcile the way we interpret biblical text with the moral and ethical issues of today. 
and to do so I'm going to first turn to the book of Joshua. After wandering in the wilderness for 40 years after their flight from slavery in Egypt, the Israelites prepared to cross the Jordan River and possess the promised land by conquering the city of Jericho. The Israelite armies were given specific instructions on how this conquest was to take place, and in Joshua 6, we read what happened. On the seventh day they rose early, at dawn, and marched around the city of Jericho in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpets, they raised a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So the people charged straight ahead into the city and captured it. Then they devoted to destruction by the edge of the sword all in that city, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys. Here ends the reading. Now that lethal battle has been memorialized in a children's Bible song. We sang it in Sunday school. I remember gleefully singing, Joshua at the Battle of Jericho, Jericho, Joshua at the Battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down, down, and the walls came tumbling down. Our class would march around in a circle as we sang, and at the end, we would all collapse laughing on the floor. What fun! But we were never encouraged to think, however, about what we were really reenacting. At the Battle of Jericho, the residents of an entire city were slashed to death by swords. That includes men, women, children, the helpless elderly, and infants, along with all of their livestock. What a bloodbath. In addition, the city was left as a pile of rubble. Today, you can visit the excavated ruins of Jericho in the West Bank. It's the ruins of one of the oldest walled cities in the world. Look at the pictures coming out of Gaza today, and you can get the general idea. And it was not only the Battle of Jericho where the genocidal brutality was memorialized. Joshua leads the Israelite army on to the city of Ai, where this slaughter and destruction takes place. When Israel had finished slaughtering all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them, and when all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and attacked it with the edge of the sword. The total of those who fell that day, both men and women, was 12,000, all the people of Ai. For Joshua did not draw back his hand, with which he stretched out the sword, until he had utterly destroyed all the inhabitants of Ai. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as their booty, 
according to the word that the Lord had issued to Joshua. So Joshua burned I, and made it forever, a heap of ruins as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree, threw it down at the entrance of the gate of the city, and raised over it a great heap of stones, which stands there to this day. Here ends the reading. Even by the standards of today's mechanized warfare, this was some pretty brutal stuff. Keep in mind that this level of slaughter and the total raisings of cities was sanctioned by God. That has raised some serious questions about God and Scripture among many people. Was God really authorizing genocide? What implications does that have on warfare today? I've done a little research and I've come across some interesting speculation as to why God authorized or commanded such brutality. One writer I encountered justified Joshua's scorched earth policy of warfare by the fact of the, that the people of Jericho were wicked. The list of sins that they were guilty of included sacrificing young children to idols, profaning the name of God, homosexuality, and bestiality practiced by both men and women. This modern writer justified the killing of children because, due to their upbringing, they would grow up to be wicked too. The slaying of the animals was justified because they had been defiled by humans' immoral acts with them. You know, sadly, I have heard the killing of children in Gaza justified by the fact that they will almost certainly grow up to be terrorists themselves because of the hateful attitudes that they have been taught and the violence that they have witnessed. I find it ironic that innocent children would be condemned in anticipation of how they will be radicalized by the violence that's being perpetrated on them by their enemies in the state of Israel. If we come from a literal and originalist interpretation of Scripture, it is difficult, if not impossible, to not be led to take part in acts that contradict modern moral standards, including those laid out by the Geneva Convention the International Court of Justice, and the United Nations. We can avoid the road to inappropriate and inhumane action only if we consider the historical context of ancient biblical text. With regard to biblical text, let me state an important truism. That was then, this is now. The actions of the past even those demanded by God in the Bible do not necessarily justify our actions in the present. The entire Bible was written by human beings at particular times and in particular places in history. The words of the Bible's authors were written from their perspective or written down from oral sources that often had occurred centuries prior. And that's why the character of God seems to change over the course of biblical history. But it was not God that was changing. It was the way that people understood God that was changing 
and growing. The beauty of the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, is that it is a living and breathing thing. The same spirit that the writers breathed into the text they wrote is still at work among us. That spirit allows us to use not only our human understanding and Bible learning, but also the love and compassion that God has breathed into our hearts. For Christians, an example of that compassionate evolution can be found in Matthew 5, where Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Here ends the reading. And not only Christians have a tradition of the living Word of God, traditions and schools of thought dealing with Jewish scriptures and the Quran exist as well. So Jericho was then, Gaza is now. As a starting point, genocide perpetrated by Palestinians against Israel is condemned. Also condemned is genocide committed by Israel upon Palestinian peoples or groups. As an aside, genocide is the deliberate killing or severe mistreatment of a large number of people from a particular nation or ethnic group with the aim of destroying that nation or group. More often, genocide refers to a coordinated plan aimed at the destruction of the essential foundations of the life of a national or ethnic group so that this group will wither and die. And the rejection of genocide has real-world consequences for all the parties involved. Take U.S. government funding, for example. Theoretically, the U.S. could and should provide humanitarian aid to the people of Gaza, including food, water, and medical supplies. The U.S. could and should continue to support Israel in defense of its national security, because they're a sovereign nation. We should not, on the other hand, provide support for Hamas and its terrorist and genocidal actions against Israel. We also should not support Israel in a complete destruction of Gaza and its infrastructure that will lead to the death and destruction of thousands of innocents. This is admittedly complicated, but we are far beyond the point that we can characterize ourselves and our nation 
as either pro-Palestinian or pro-Israel. So what is our way forward? Any resolution of the conflagration in Gaza must take place on an international level through the partnership of many nations. The International Court of Justice has ruled that Israel is plausibly engaged in genocide of Palestinian people in Gaza. Now note that this is not a definitive ruling, but it can provide some guidance for our future actions. This ruling implies that it would be appropriate for our nation to support the United Nations Relief Agency to provide aid to Palestinian refugees and make sure they receive it. Also, states party to the Genocide Convention have an obligation to put an end to the continued mass killing in Gaza. The United States, unhindered by local partisan politics, should continue its diplomatic efforts to secure a lasting ceasefire, return of hostages, and eventual resolution to the war. The goal, instead of creating millions of Gazan refugees, should be to resettle and rebuild their lives and city. Revenge is never a justifiable motive. In the meantime, living together in trust and hope, let us pray the prayer of St. Francis. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord's face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. <music>